Let us pray. God, we give you thanks this day for your word and for the ways that you use scripture to guide us. We ask you to bless this time and bless our hearing of your message for us today. Amen. Whenever we have a time change, I always think back to my experience in college working as a front desk clerk in our residence hall. There were round-the-clock shifts manned by students, and each of us were required to have at least one graveyard shift on our two-week cycle, the two-week schedule. It was either a 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. shift or a 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. shift. I always chose the 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. shift because I didn't see myself doing well through that 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. one. But an interesting discussion always happened when the time change came around. If you worked from one to five, what happens when the time changes at 2 a.m.? Do you get paid in the spring for an hour you didn't work? And what about that four hour shift that becomes five hours in the fall when an hour into your shift at 2 a.m. it suddenly became, becomes 1 a.m. again? I think we worked it out at the time by uh, assigning the same person to work that shift in the fall and in the spring, so it would balance out. But there's a reason the time change happens at 2 a.m., right? There's something about the middle of the night. I remember one time I was working very late at my law office, and it was well past that 2 a.m. witching hour, but also well before the sun would come up, that in-between time. I left my office for the short walk home, a bit longer than my current commute, but still only about a 10-minute walk through downtown San Jose. It was a very quiet night, and I remember seeing a lone person riding a bicycle slowly across my horizon. That was the only soul I saw on my walk home. And even that person had a bit of a mystique about them in the darkness. And I never would have noticed that soul rider in the daylight. The middle of the night. During my hospital chaplaincy internship, we were each assigned overnight shifts every couple of weeks. Anyone who has worked in a hospital or spent time in a hospital overnight knows that even though the work goes on in earnest through the night, there's something strange that happens after all the administrative staff leave, the visiting hours are over, the ordinary procedures cease. There's a quiet. The lights are often dimmed. The hums and even the dings and beeps of the equipment become a sort of lullaby trying to force sleep, but really perhaps just prolonging for many the loneliness of their condition, even while others are working all through the night. Conversations happen at night, conversations and thoughts that sometimes only seem to happen at night. Back in college, I worked a few of those 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. shifts in the dorm. And I never knew what to do after them. Do you sleep? Do you stay up? Nurses and other hospital overnight workers must come up with a rhythm. 
night takes on a different meaning for them. You see, for them, the dimming of the lights doesn't dim their work, their calling, their identity. In fact, when the lights are dimmed, when the west of, rest of the world goes to sleep, they're awake. And this cadre of people for whom the night is a time of awakening includes so many who do the work we often never see, the cleaners, the stalkers, the drivers, the deliverers. We never see them. But we see and enjoy the fruits of their nights, the results of their work. I had a friend once with a parakeet. The interesting thing about this bird, and I know that some of you have had pet birds, the interesting thing was that I was told that these birds would be frightened without something to mimic their nest cave that they'd be used to in the wild. So to avoid terror in the night, perhaps terror for the birds, but I also think for the owners, you covered these birds. That cover, that, that cloth over the cage creates a safety and a place to rest and relax through the night. The darkness brought peace. One time I was camping with some friends. It was a quickly planned summer camping trip and I decided I would sleep outside. We were in the middle of nowhere near a lake that apparently had great fish that I never saw. I set up my cot before bedtime. Two friends were in tents, one was in a car and another one had, the, had brought with him the largest double height queen size air mattress you've ever seen for his night under the stars. I laid on my cot and I couldn't fall asleep that night out in the open. We had doused our lanterns, we had let our fire go down. And when the silence of the darkness came, I heard every rustle of the leaves. Everything sounded like footsteps or some ferocious beast coming to attack me. My imagination went wild in the darkness. The later it got, the more the moon shone and the more my eyes adjusted to the light and the more I could see. The stars made their appearance, filling in some of the details of what was around me. I could see the leaves dancing in the wind, not moved by some predator. I sat up. I saw my friend sleeping soundly and peacefully on his princely large bed. I, I heard the quiet breeze. As my eyes continued to adjust, the anxious terror of the darkness continued to subside as my eyes revealed more around me. As my eyes took comfort in the dark surroundings that were somehow becoming more and more illuminated as I sat in the darkness, more and more reminding me of the world I knew the world that I had seen around me in the daylight. Now, it turns out, as we all know, there's some science behind this. And you've probably heard about this uh, concept of rods and cones before. And I'm not a scientist or a doctor and certainly not an ophthalmologist. So you'll have to bear with me a little bit as I reduce this concept to some basic, very basic ideas. Essentially, Eyes are made up of lots of vessels and muscles and nerves, and these all work together to help us see. But how do we actually see? This is where these rods and cones come into the picture. They're part of the retina. Cones and rods are two types of what are called photoreceptors within the retina. This means that they're responsible for receiving signals or images, processing them, and then sending them to the brain. 
The cone and the rod serve different purposes to work toward the same goal, helping us see. Let's look at these separately. The rod is what enables us to see in low light. When I was sitting on my cot, unable to sleep because of all the perceived threats around me, it was the rods that were working hard to help me to see. The, the rod is more sensitive than the cone. But it takes your eyes time to adjust from the light to the darkness. You've all experienced this. Whether it is a well-lit room or, like my case, the night sky, it usually takes the rod about 30 minutes to fully adjust to the absence of light. Interestingly, the rod is also the better motion sensor since it's more sensitive in nature and has more individual receptors than the cone. This motion sense is predominant in our peripheral vision since that's where the rods are positioned. The cone is made up of three different types of receptors that allow you to see color and details. These three different receptors are appropriately named short, medium, and long wavelength cones. The size difference represents each receptor's sensitivity to light. And the most important difference between the cone and the rod is that the cone is more light sensitive than the rod. And the cone requires much more light to enter into it in order to send signals to the brain. This is why you're often unable to differentiate colors in dim light conditions. Since the cone requires a high level of light in order to send signals, the cones are primarily responsible for your visual acuity, your ability to see objects in fine detail. And if your cones aren't working properly, you may experience difficulty focusing on an object or perceiving its color correctly, if at all. And so we have these rods that see the level of light around you and the cone that sees the colors and the sharpness of the objects, but together they're what help us see. In the darkness, the rods are an overdrive, trying to help us use the light we have to see something in that darkness. And what we realize, much like the people around us who work through the night to make our lives more livable, the rods begin to help us as our eyes adjust within the darkness to see the beauty whose color and detail may be hidden under that veil, that veil of darkness. To see that even in the darkness, much is happening and to see that even in the darkness, see that even in the darkness, we may have help to see us see and appreciate the light, especially when that light is hard to notice. In Shakespeare's familiar, tragic, familiar and tragic love story, Romeo and Juliet, there's an interesting but subtle twist on light and darkness. While we often consider light to be the sign of openness or hope of good things and darkness to be a place of confusion, of melancholy, of doom, in Romeo and Juliet, the opposite becomes true. For these two, the only time they can be together is in secret under the cover of the night. And it becomes the time that they long for because it's when they don't have to be hiding. And as the hours creep toward daylight, they are overwhelmed with sorrow. At one point, Juliet wishes that it could be night out always so that their time would be uninterrupted. In the darkness, Romeo and Juliet find something they could never find in the light. In John's gospel, light and dark dance like these two lovers. 
Light and dark are placed beside one another, and more often than not, we focus on Christ as a light coming in to overcome the darkness. Light that pierces through the darkness. And in fact, we read in John chapter 1 that what has come into being in Christ was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And when we focus on Christ as the light, we sometimes forget that Christ didn't come to illuminate the light. Christ didn't come into a daylight world, and Christ doesn't expect us, you and me, to be always living in our own light, generated by us, by our courage, by our faith, by our strength, by our own doing. No, Christ invites us to come to him in our darkness, to allow him to bring light into our life. In our time when the light is low and we can't see the details and we can't see the colors, even as our eyes seem to adjust, even as we grow comfortable within our darkness. In our gospel reading from John 3 that Marcia read for us this morning, Nicodemus goes to see Christ in the darkness. Our text says he went to go see Jesus by night. In a very practical sense, he does this because he is a religious leader, a Pharisee. And like Romeo and Juliet, it would be scandalous for Nicodemus to be seen doing this by day. Jesus was not in good favor with the religious leaders, especially after he made a scene at the temple, the text we looked at last week. So Nicodemus visits Jesus at night because it might just be the only time he can go see Jesus and ask these questions. Sometimes there are things that can really only happen in the darkness. When the world pauses around us and the distractions fade into the colors and those details begin to soften. And so he comes to Jesus and it becomes clear that the nighttime isn't the only darkness. Nicodemus is confused about Jesus. He's confused about who Jesus is and why Jesus is there. Nicodemus steps into his own personal spiritual darkness, his darkness of, of doubt and confusion, but also, also the beautiful darkness of curiosity, the darkness he steps into as he allows the rod and staff of Christ to begin to be his comfort as he seeks to experience the light. Later in John's gospel, right before Jesus will be arrested and killed, Jesus says that he, and he refers to himself as the light, the light, he says, is with them for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, he says. And this is the important part. So that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, Believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. When we approach Christ, when Nicodemus comes before Christ, the light isn't always immediately clear. We're not immediately brought out of the darkness. And Nicodemus he really doesn't even understand in that moment what Jesus is saying or doing. And sometimes our world can feel this way. 
We look around at our own darkness, the, the darkness of our world, and we wonder how and where Jesus is bringing the light. During our Lenten journey, we are in many ways often invited to step into the darkness of our lives and of our journey toward the cross and the empty tomb. We are encouraged to sit for a moment in the darkness to experience our surroundings, to let our eyes adjust, to experience the reality of our sorrows, our fears, our struggles, our laments, to be vulnerable. We recognize in that, though, our confusion. You see, after Jesus tries to explain things to Nicodemus, Nicodemus isn't getting it. And he looks at Jesus and he asks, how can this be? How can this be? When we think back on the last year of our lives, when we look at the world around us today, a world that in many ways was paused for the past year, yet was somehow not at all paused as the pause button didn't keep people we loved alive so that we could hug them once more, a pause button that didn't stop diagnosis of new diseases, a pause button that didn't keep grandchildren from growing up without you getting to see them along the way, a pause button that didn't stop political messes and discord and violence, a pause button that didn't pause the sun from setting or like Juliet hoped that didn't pause the sun from rising. When we look at the world around us, stumbling in the darkness, we look to Jesus and we ask like Nicodemus, how can this be? And Jesus looks at us like he looked at Nicodemus in the midst of the darkness in which we're fumbling about in the dark of the night. And this one, the one who calls himself the light of the world, the one God sent to bring light into the world. Jesus looks at him and he says those words that have comforted and assured believers since John recorded them in his gospel. Jesus looks at him in the midst of his darkness and he says, God loves you. God loves you so very much that God sent God's son so that the darkness will not overwhelm, so that the light will, so that you would have eternal life with the one who created you. And this, my friends, this is the joy of Christ, a reason to rejoice, even in the darkness. In Lent, we boldly, or maybe even fearfully, step into the darkness. But then we see that even in the darkness, perhaps especially in the darkness, we can more clearly experience the light of the world. We can seek to become children of the light, seeking to follow Christ. Instead of not knowing where we're going in the darkness, as Jesus says, we can recognize that there's something powerful that happens in the darkness. There's good work in the darkness. And most of all, it is often in the darkness that we can dare approach and encounter Christ, the light, the one who loves us. Perhaps the, the light of Christ is more visible than ever when we pause for a moment in our darkness 
and see that our eyes have adjusted. And even though we might not be able to see in our present situation, the details and the color of how God's promises will manifest in our lives, we can see a glimmer of light. We can see the shapes. We can see reminders of God's goodness. We can rejoice in the one who is with us always, the one who loves us beyond our imagination. For God so loved the world, we hear in John's gospel. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.